Welcome to another edition of Profiles, a look into the music, artistry, lives, and legacies of the musicians and artists who defined a uniquely creative era by breaking boundaries and finding new influences. While they not only ushered in social as well as political change, they also created immensely popular legacies that have truly stood the test of time. My special guest is Dave Zirin, the nation's sports editor. He's the author of 11 books on the politics of sports, most recently, The Kaepernick Effect, Taking a Knee, Changing the World, which we'll be discussing this hour. Dave Zirin has been named one of Udney Reader's 50 visionaries who are changing our world. Zirin is a frequent guest on ESPN, MSNBC, and Democracy Now! He also hosts the nation's Edge of Sports podcast. Dave Zirin, welcome to KPFK. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. First question, Dave, was Colin Kaepernick known as an activist before he became known for that simple and powerful act of protest? And why did he make that choice? Uh, No, Colin Kaepernick was not known as an activist. Uh, Since 2012 or so, we've seen a new generation of athletes step up and use their hyper-exalted platform to be heard. And Colin Kaepernick was not one of those athletes until August of 2016. Uh, Really, why he first started sitting and then taking a knee during the anthem, it grew out of the summer of 2016 when Alton Sterling and Philando Castile uh, were both um, killed by police uh, within days of each other with the video uh, being played on social media a great deal. And a lot of athletes started speaking out during that very, very difficult summer. And Colin Kaepernick was actually not one of them, but he was posting some articles that showed a interest in learning more about policing and, and abolition and how that operates. But if you weren't following his social media closely, you never would have thought of him as somebody who would sit during the anthem. So his act of not standing for the national anthem might have gone unnoticed at first, if not for the sports reporter who asked him about it. Who was that reporter? Yeah, I interviewed him for the book. I've known him for some time. He's terrific. His name is Steve Weish, uh, Howard University's own Steve Weish. And and Steve uh, was somebody who had known Colin Kaepernick since he was in college at Nevada. Uh, he followed his social media. They'd built a personal relationship, as all good journalists must. And when Steve saw Colin sitting behind the other players during the anthem of that preseason game in August, uh, he was the only one who really got it. You know, some people thought, oh, he's just sulking because he's not starting. Other people didn't notice at all. I'm talking about the folks in the press room. But Steve Weiss saw something there, and he made a beeline for Colin Kaepernick, and that's uh, how we know what he was doing. It might have just been a one-week thing, but once word got out, that's when controversy really started to just uh, burble over throughout the sports world. And that's when Colin Kaepernick, along with a former NFL player uh, named Nate Boyer, who also was a former Green Beret, came up with this idea of taking a knee. And he thought taking a knee would actually quiet down people's anger at him for not standing during the anthem. But of course, the opposite is what happened. Tell us exactly how the act of protest changed from sitting uh, to taking a knee. Absolutely. Um, well, there were there was about a two-week period in between the first time that Colin Kaepernick sat to when he first uh, took a knee. And it really came out of this uh, hysteria 
about him not standing where people said this is he's insulting the troops and uh, he hates this country and and Colin Kaepernick kept saying no what I'm doing is a protest against police violence um, and against racial inequity and yet people were not willing to hear that uh, because you know oftentimes if people don't like your message they're not going to care how you how the messenger is dressed mm-hmm. and so they just did not want to hear what he had to say so he tried to come up with a way to enact a symbolic gesture where people would understand that he was showing reverence for the ceremony of the national anthem, but also protesting the gap between what this country promises and what it far too often delivers to communities of color. So Colin Kaepernick made this decision to kneel after that discussion with Nate Boyer, the former Green Beret and NFL player, and as Nate Boyer has explained, he said, look, you knee when you pray, you, you get on a knee when you pray, you get on a knee when you um, propose to somebody, you know, in sports, that phrase, take a knee is one of the most, uh, you know, intimate things a coach can say to a team. It means gather around, take a knee, let's really talk this through. And they thought that by people seeing him take that knee, uh, they they would somehow be satisfied that this was about a very particular issue, police violence, uh, and not about some, you know, weird conspiracy that this is an act of hatred of the troops or something like that. Um, And that, of course, is not what happened. That was a pretty grand miscalculation, partly because... I think that gesture of taking a knee, I think everybody, whether you were for his message or against it, recognized that this could be instantly iconic, and it certainly was. Colin Kaepernick played professional football, and many of us saw this act of taking a knee as something that happened in pro sports leagues. So it's surprising to find in your book how pervasive taking a knee became. And let's talk a little bit about the first chapter of your book about high school. Sure. Um, The book is divided into three parts, uh, high school, college, and professional, looking at different cases of people who had taken a knee and the experiences that they had, particularly the backlashes that they had, that they suffered. Um, I found out that the stories really began after they took the knee, not before they took the knee, because it was someone joked with me that the book should be called What to Expect When You're Protesting. (laughs) Because in all of these different stories, you have these different scenarios like, what do you do if your coach doesn't support you? What do you do if your teammates don't support you? What do you do if you get death threats? What do you do if the school gets death threats? I mean, all of these scenarios played out in these different stories and in small towns across the country. I got to say, as I was writing this book during the pandemic, I was getting these amazing interviews with these high school students in particular, partly because they were at home with nothing to do. And we're only too happy to talk. I mean, I, I really was able to benefit from their boredom at that time. Uh, it's not easy to get a high school student on the phone. Usually they just want to text. So it was nice to have these long conversations. Uh, but then when the summer of 2020 hit and the police murder of George Floyd, uh, and then you had the largest protests in the history of the United States that took place in all 50 states. So I went about calling all the people that I interviewed, particularly the high school students. And what I found was that they were pretty universally either going to protests or even organizing large groups of people or even leading groups of people into protests. And that's when it really clicked with me that while many roads may have led us to the summer of 2020 in those protests, one of those roads runs straight through the athletic fields of the United States. 
And these young people were really a harbinger of things to come in terms of struggle. And they were also the canary in the coal mine, uh, warning us about the kind of violence and backlash that could happen if people dared speak out for racial justice. I mean, that's what they experienced. And you see so much of that today in the right wing of this country. So that's the general parameters of why I even wanted to talk to these high school students, because I feel like they're, they're the leading edge of people who are fighting back right now. And their, their courage is unbelievable. And I really wanted to center their words in the book. My publisher talked to me about, you know, oh, well, maybe you should divide the, the book by, by sport or divide it through gender or divide it through um, black athletes and white athletes who took a knee and all these different um, types of machinations. But I really did believe that the high school athletes, the college athletes and the professional athletes all face some very distinct challenges that just come from being in that stage in your life. And I wanted to honor that. So I wanted to just read uh... One a bit of praise for the book, Dave, from uh, Publishers Weekly, and uh, they say, an enthralling look at the impact of peaceful protests by sports figures at the high school, college, and professional levels offers rousing evidence of the life-changing effects spurred by individual action, which I, I feel is really uh, important and the fact that from this that began five years ago, it is a real movement. And by writing this book, you're even spreading the message even more so. And it's just so incredibly important. And I, I thank you for your, you know, your brilliant work. But thank you so much. But Dave, I wanted to get back to. Uh, uh, more about the book and tell us what happened to an entire football league in Beaumont, Texas. Sure, sure. Uh, if I could, uh, first and foremost, though, I just got to respond to something you just said is that, you know, I think there's a real problem with how history is taught in this country in that far too often it's the history of great people, usually great men, and they're seen as the motor of history when we know that the motor of history is the people and it's the people rising up. And so I don't want this period of time since 2016 to be remembered just for Colin Kaepernick, because that's not going to speak to the power of what this is all represented. Like I want to represent the effect of what he did, because that's what really touched towns and cities, big and small throughout the country. And one of those towns was certainly Beaumont, Texas. Uh, Beaumont is a town that's right next door to what's still seen as a sundown town, a place where if you're black, you don't want to be driving after a certain time of day or else the police will descend upon you. It's also right next door to a town where the grand wizard of the Texas KKK calls, uh, calls home. Uh, so this is the situation around Beaumont. And, you know, there was a football team there, the Beaumont Bulls. And you know what they say in Texas is that it goes family, faith, and football, and not necessarily in that order. Uh, and yet we found out through the Beaumont Bulls story that there is something that people in power in Texas value more than family, faith, and football. They value white supremacy. And when these middle school football players for the Beaumont Bulls said to their coach that they wanted to take a knee and their coach very admirably said he would kneel with them. 
and be a part of what they're trying to do and really shield them. They never expected that the entire league would be shut down because of what they were doing was going to be seen as so divisive. Now that word really bothers me a lot, divisive, because pointing out the divisions in our society is not divisive. What's divisive is racism and inequality. That's divisive. Pointing out those divisions is an act of moral clarity, not an act of division in and of itself. So they weren't being divisive at all, but that was the accusation. And pushing forward, these young people all of a sudden had nowhere to play football, which, you know, some of your listeners might be saying, good, they're only in middle school. But remember, this is Texas we're talking about here. And uh, they were able to play because some NFL players actually got wind of the story. And, you know, and that just speaks to the power of social media in this story, which is very intense. Uh, in terms of its ability to connect people. I mean, frankly, I, I wouldn't have been able to do any of these interviews possibly without social media, like the ability to connect with folks, to read stories about them and to reach out to them was, was intrinsic to getting the, the thoughts to paper. Uh, but the, the, in this particular case, it was NFL players who heard what was happening to the Beaumont Bulls and they wrote some checks and the parents were able to start a whole new league with a greater focus on on social justice as part of being part of the football program in Beaumont. So that's the Beaumont story. And it, it's one that's, I think, worth telling because uh, it, it shows that some of these stories do have happy endings and a lot of these stories don't have happy endings. So I'm glad there's one that at least put a smile on people's face. Why have you said that uh, one of the most satisfying things about writing The Kaepernick Effect, Taking a Knee, Changing the World, has been keeping in touch with the people you met in the course of writing it? Well, I made it very clear to the folks I was, I was talking to that, you know, the point of this was not for me to cash out on their courage. Uh, anything I make from this book is going to an organization called Serve Your City which people can look up online, serveyourcitydc.org, which does amazing mutual aid work in Southeast DC. And I've made sure that the, after the book came out that the young people I spoke to knew that and sent them the book. And they've just gotten back to me with how much they, they, they love and appreciate the book and how happy they are that, you know, if people read it and it gets out there, it's gonna get paid forward. Like their courage is gonna be paid forward. One of the things that Serve Your City did, and I just, I've had such a good time telling the people I interviewed this, is they secured 500 copies of the book and put one book in each of 500 backpacks, uh, along with school supplies, and gave them away to uh, young people in Southeast. You know, that's about planting seeds for the future. And some of these young folks who I've been working with and to tell their stories, it just fills them with a great deal of pride and in some cases, even vindication, because a lot of them really did suffer for what they did. They got kicked off their team. They got kicked out of their school. They lost friends. And so to see it pay forward like this uh, for a lot of them has been has been a beautiful thing. And, you know, I, I just have the incredible fortune of of being able to hear from them and hear about how their history is being taught and how it feels to them to know that they've been woven into this history. I wanted to, to ask you about uh, and for you to tell us about talking to John Carlos, uh, the 
athlete famous for his act of defiance and protest at the 1968 Summer Olympics. Of course. Um, John Carlos is someone I've known for uh, over 20, about 20 years. I can't believe it at this point. And I wrote his memoir with him, uh, The John Carlos Story. So we're, we're very tight. Uh, the whole genesis of this book really happened because John Carlos said to me once in a very offhanded way, you know, there were a lot of people who raised their fists in 1968 after we did. And I just like was like, what? I couldn't believe it. He said that to me a couple of years ago, and I wanted to know who these young people were and what happened to them. You know, did they lose coaches? Did they lose teammates? Did they did they suffer for it? But of course, I had no idea how we were going to begin to tell that story, given that this was 50 years ago, over 50 years ago. So it made me think, though, of these one-off stories about people who took a knee um, in the tradition of Colin Kaepernick and to make sure that those stories don't get forgotten. So in 50 years, people might hear about it and wonder who those folks were. I just wanted some written record of it. So it all really starts with John Carlos. And so because of that, I thought it appropriate, since it all started with John Carlos, to end the book with John Carlos. You know, I was going to write an afterword of some kind, but I just thought John Carlos was able, I mean, I spoke to him at the height of the protests, uh, that were happening around the police murder of George Floyd. And he just brought so much emotional clarity and political clarity to everything that was raging in the streets at that moment that I just thought, you know what, let, let John have the last word on this. You know, somebody who has been parts of struggles like this for over 50 years, and he's got that long-term marathon runner's view of what it means to be an activist athlete. And I thought his wisdom was the note to end on. And Tommy Smith, of course, uh, the athlete uh, next to Giancarlos, he wrote a book uh, that I just discovered called Silent Gesture. Oh, great book. Uh, written with my buddy David Steele. That's a terrific book. And we also can't forget Peter Norman, who was the silver medalist on that platform. Australian runner who wore a button in solidarity with Tommy Smith and Giancarlos and suffered terribly back home in Australia for doing that. Mm -hmm. And when Peter Norman passed away, the two lead pallbearers at his funeral were John Carlos and Tommy Smith. Wow, that is so cool. Yeah. And there's a movie called Salute that's about the documentary about the raising of the fist that's, that centers Peter Norman's story. So if people are curious about Peter Norman and that rather excellent example of white allyship, they should check out his story. And we discussed a little bit of this earlier. Um, because we are sort of getting uh, towards the end of our time together. The act of taking a knee in the national movement and inspired predated some of the largest marches uh, in the history of the country after the murders of Breonna Taylor and, of course, George Floyd. Um, do you think uh, Colin Kaepernick's protests started the momentum that was picked up by those huge marches across the country? I mean, I, the way I would put it is I would, I think they sustained the momentum because, you know, this movement didn't start in the athletic fields, of course. It started in Ferguson, Missouri. It started in the streets. And I'm just talking about the latest iteration of a movement we've, of course, seen in this country for as long as there's been inequality and injustice. But the latest iteration of this predates Colin Kaepernick. But if you go back and look at those years between 2017 and 2019, 
there was actually not a lot going on um, in terms of this particular side of the movement around Black Lives Matter, around police violence. I mean, the Trump years really uh, squelched a lot of that uh, by force in many cases uh, and excessive prosecutions. And I mean, it put a bit of a chill on the movement, except the place where you still saw it reflected was at these athletic events. And because these athletic events, as I chart in the book, took place in red states, blue states, rural areas, urban areas, it brought the movement to a kind of grassroots audience. Like if Colin Kaepernick brought the movement to people's living rooms from above, it's these young people who brought it to the streets from below. And what what is Colin Kaepernick up to these days? And what do you think uh, will be his legacy? He's got a film coming out on Netflix being done with Ava DuVernay, who did Selma. That's about the early years of his life. Uh, I'll be curious to see if it finds an audience. I certainly hope it does. I don't know if if uh, there's going to be interest in a sort of biographical portrait of Colin Kaepernick as a young man. Um, and I don't know what politics it's going to show. So I'm, I'm very curious about it. Uh, I don't know what it's going to bring to the table, and I'm, I'm certainly anxious to see. Um, as to how we'll be remembered, well, you know, you've got that expression, Maggie, that, you know, history is written by the winners. I think if our side wins, basically, like if we're able to win an agenda of peace and social justice, um, I think Colin Kaepernick will be remembered as somebody who really helped generate a spark that led to people being able to sustain the most definitive social movement of their generation um until the summer of 2020 i think that's how he'll be remembered if our side loses and we have to deal with reaction and you know rule by joe manchin uh for the next several years then he'll be remembered in a much different way i mean much more as like this single person who performed this single act and no sense of it is part of the history of of mass struggle, which would be a great tragedy because then the next generation will have to relearn the lessons. The name of the book is The Kaepernick Effect, Taking a Knee, Changing the World. The author is Dave Zirin, who's been my very special guest. Uh, Dave uh, Zirin is the author of People's History of Sports in the United States. And you can find Dave Zirin's work or contact him through his website, Edge of Sports. Dot com. You can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Edge of Sports. And I found him easily on Facebook uh, just by I looking. I thought it was our mutual friend, John Wiener, who introduced us. <laughs> well, he did, but I, but I also found you on Facebook myself. Okay. <laughs> I just wanted to give a shout out to John. We love John Wiener. He's awesome. Yes. Dave Zirin, thank you so much, and uh, let's stay in touch. Thank you, Maggie. Be well. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this edition of Profiles, and please join me next time for another in-depth look at the legendary musicians and artists who changed the trajectory, opened our minds, and have continued to inspire us. I'm your host and producer, Maggie LaPique. Special thanks to my producers, Jerry O and Andrea Love. Thanks again for listening, and be sure to tune in next time for Profiles with Maggie LaPique.